0: As goes Texas, so goes the nation, the sort of the refugees you know, from New York and, mm. and California. Mm-hmm. Where are they going? They're yeah. fleeing their, their blue Democrat backgrounds where, where the socialism is just almost the new norm. They're fleeing to Texas. Well, what happens if Texas flips and turns blue? Mm. Where do we go then as a country? And then what is the other big state that could stand up and push back against the unconstitutional tyranny that's coming from the federal government, especially under Joe Biden? So, so the stakes really couldn't be higher. I mean,
1: Hello. Welcome again to the episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today I'm delighted to have on another guest who is a happy warrior, someone who's on the front lines for liberty, freedom, and prosperity every day and not only in Texas, but really across the country. And it's none other than Texas representative Brian Harrison. Brian, welcome to Let People Prosper show.
0: Vance, it's uh, always great to be with my with you, my friend. I appreciate what you're doing uh, for the cause of freedom and liberty, as you say, not just here in Texas, but coast to coast as well. Great to be with you.
1: That's right, man. And we, we need it <laughs> with everything oh, that's going on. More, more now than ever. Amen, brother. And so we're going to have a lot to talk about. It's going to be a great discussion. This We're recording this on October 18th, 2023. So in case something happens in between now and then, we'll have that date on here. Uh, I really appreciate the guests for joining us, please be sure to subscribe or review as well. Before we get going too far, let me go ahead and read your bio, Brian, and then we'll jump into it. So, Texas Representative Brian Harrison is a passionate and effective advocate for limited government and individual liberty who proudly represents House District 10, which covers all of Ellis County. A native Texan and graduate of Ovala Christian School, Brian and his family have long been involved in Ellis County and committed to protecting fundamental constitutional rights. During the Trump administration, Brian served as the chief of staff at the US Department of Health and Human Services, the largest government agency in the world with a budget of over $1.4 trillion and 25 divisions, where he led a staff of over 85,000 employees. Just a small staff there. He is a regular guest on state and national television shows fighting to protect liberty against tyrannical big government policies that harm Texans. Brian is a proud member of the fight Texas Aggie class of 2004, where he there you go, where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in economics and also studied business administration and political science. He is an instrument-rated private pilot who lives in Ellis County, Texas, with his wife and their four children. With all that said, Brian, you've got a, a, you've got a lot to talk about today, and, and a great background, and a great family, and everything else. But what really drives you to do what you do every day?
0: Well, look, I, I have. It's the very last thing you mentioned there. Uh, I've got four young kids. Uh, my uh, my oldest boy. I've got a nine year old boy, a seven year old boy, a five year old boy, and a three year old little daughter. And you know, I as a parent, you, you really can't describe how much love you have for your kid. I know every parent out there can can relate to that. But I, I am genuinely concerned, might even be too, too tame of a word, I, I'm frightened for the state and the nation that they may inherit if we uh, continue down the course we're on, which is towards greater government, less control less individual liberty less due process we've got the criminalization now of political opposition the silencing of dissent i mean it go down the list of all of our freedoms and our liberties that are under attack and on on the chopping block on a daily basis so at the at the end of the day what drives me and at the beginning of the day is doing everything that i can to make sure that my kids have a chance to inherit a free or i would even say a more free and a more prosperous texas
1: yeah. yeah. that's great. And and that's ultimately why I called this show the Let People Prosper Show. You know, Brian, I really feel like we talked about this. I feel like that's my calling. It's something I would try to do each and every day and really try to get government out of the way as much as possible, which provides mm-hmm. the most prosperity. When you look across the yeah. globe, you look at different measures of economic um, abundance, economic satisfaction, and, and ultimately, what how people are prospering and flourishing over time. That's really been the case. And what's interesting and why I was so excited about, you know, this conversation was your time in D.C., and then look at your time where you've been doing in, in Texas and just kind of jumping right in. What all did you do while you were at the Department of Health and Human Services and what kind of what did you learn from that experience?
0: Well, it's a really broad question. And a lot yeah, of people, and it's hard to even communicate to people uh, the breadth and the size of HHS. And, you know, I'm, I'm a proud state uh, official now in the great state of Texas. And you'll often hear our governor or state officials when they travel around the state bragging, they same saying, listen, listen, Texas is so big. If we were our own nation state, we would be the ninth largest economy on earth. And, and that's great. And we should be proud of that. What I'm not proud of, though, is the fact that if HHS, my old single cabinet agency, if it was its own nation state, we'd be the fifth right behind the united kingdom and, and you mentioned some of the just staggering statistics it's well over i mean 1.5 trillion with 18 and, and i tweeted this out last night because uh, i was thinking back to one of the greatest political speeches i think ever given in 1964 uh, ronald reagan long before he was president uh call a time for choosing a speech he gave on behalf of barry goldwater and he was lamenting the 45 billion dollars a year that our nation spends on welfare programs and he juxtaposed that to hhs today which is getting actually getting close to 2 trillion Uh, just in and of itself these are these are numbers that are not sustainable every time government grows freedom and individual wealth necessarily decreases there's no there's no diversion from that that's ever uh, been established in in any economy on earth and so what hhs it's not just big in the size of budget but we oversee the agencies that folks are probably more familiar with uh, the medicare program the medicaid program the food and drug administration the national institutes for health the centers for disease control so we have 26 total divisions just one of which the FDA regulates one out of every $4 spent in the American economy, so when people think HHS they primarily think healthcare and and that's real. But what HHS really is is it's the world's largest regulatory agency, and so what was so important to me was to take the custody of our regulatory responsibilities more seriously than any, any administration ever had. The Trump administration was quintessentially deregulatory. You were there in the White House, you know that. And, and the, the concern that I have, and I know this is kind of a long way to answer the question, but it's really important, and I love getting to do TV interviews you know, that are more than 90 seconds where we can flesh this stuff out. Right. We are rapidly moving into, or maybe we're already there, what I call a post-constitutional era In America, Hmm. where when our founders set up our Constitution, they wanted the hurdle to be really high for the government to act in any sort of way that would bind people, uh, create burdens on them or deprive them of their money through taxes uh, or freedom uh, through through um, government action um, prohibitions. Well, the problem is what we've had now for over a generation is legislative bodies at the federal level and sadly also at the state level outsource their responsibilities to nameless, faceless, unaccountable bureaucrats in the executive branch agency. And there's no bigger executive branch agency on earth than HHS. We had over 20,000 federal regulations. Well, Mm. a regulation is... Indistinguishable from a law if you're regular if you're governed by it. You can you can get thrown in prison, massive fines, but no congressman voted on it, no senator voted on it, no president voted on it. So I spent every waking moment that I was at HHS in not just trying to insert free market forces into our healthcare system, which which we did, or bring down drug uh, prices through market mechanisms, uh, which we did. But it was also to sort of tame the regulatory leviathan Mm. that is HHS and say, look, we've got 20,000. They're laws. We call them regulations, but they are laws that nobody voted on. Well, we need to be reviewing these laws. If we don't review these laws, then they need to go away. And I was proud to one of the most proud things I did at HHS was a i believe was as i finalized what i believe to be the biggest deregulatory action in the trump administration as also any, in any administration which we effectively us uh, put sunset provisions in twenty thousand federal regulations requiring that if they're not reviewed to determine they are in fact still helping the american people that they can't be enforced on anybody and unfortunately joe biden's walking that back as he's walking um, so many other things uh, back. But look, it was and we could do hours and hours just on that. Yeah. We used our title for when, when COVID happened, we used our public health authority, uh, Title 42, we shut down the border. We kept our word uh, to the unborn, something the presidents had promised for a long time, but not fall through on. We defunded Planned Parenthood for the first time um, in 50 years. So we really tried to minimize the burden mm. of government. And and because when you do so, as you know, yeah. you are maximizing federalism, individual liberty and freedoms. That's what we did every day. And uh, quite frankly, it's what I'm trying to still continue on doing here in the Texas House.
1: Yeah, no, it's great. And and there there was so much great work that was done within the Trump administration that I don't think gets quite the credit. There's a lot of other things that get cut, talked about and everything else. But the deregulation is really a tax cut. I mean, it works like a tax Mm -hmm. tax cut because it's freeing up the resources to change the incentives, whether it's in healthcare, whether it was in transportation, whether it was energy. You know, all these things really free up the resources to allow for them to go to where they're going to go best for people to prosper, ultimately. And I remember, you know, you know I was chief economist of the Office of Management and Budget and worked a lot with Russ Vogt, who was yeah. big about deregulation and making sure that we were cutting back as much from government as possible, trying to reduce the bureaucrats, the administrative state. because Because as you know, like within these agencies, there are a lot of career staff. Who have been there for a long time a lot of them are progressives they're not mm-hmm. the conservatives that you vote into power it's really mm-hmm. run in many cases by a lot of those career st- staff and you have to be careful i know that we were trying to push back but i guess did you get some of that there at hhs or, or maybe no, not all,
0: as oh all, no all, all the time every day and they would yeah. constantly leak to their allies in, in the mainstream media you know i would do basic common sense things like say hey uh okay If Congress gave HHS all this authority, maybe it's not constitutional, but they did it. Hey, we can. We're supposed to promulgate all these regulations. Well, they gave it to the secretary. They didn't give it to some nameless, faceless, mid-level bureaucrat. So, hey, if we're going to issue a reg, the secretary has to sign it. Basic common sense thing. Well, just that one action that I did via memo to all of our operating divisions, New York Times front page top fold power grab at HHS. Okay, they said I was politicizing science and just gonna destroy public health in America, all because I simply said, hey, all this power to effectively write a law by one person, maybe only the secretary should do that. And and one more example, because stories, (laughs) uh, stories relate with people, sometimes more than just abstract concepts on on regulatory policy. So do you remember Vance, uh, in in early mid 2020, maybe March, April, when you couldn't get Purell hand sanitizers, Mm -hmm. COVID was at its peak and all these craft distilleries across the country, whose industry had been ravaged restaurants shut down, bars shut down. They said, You know what, we're going to do what we can to help our fellow man, we're going to retool our manufacturing and make hand sanitizer. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. It was was all over the store. the Today Show, doing just profiles on these distillers, American heroes. Well, fast forward to December, the end of December in 2020, Mm -hmm. how were they thanked by the federal government? They were thanked by the federal government through the Food and Drug Administration, one of our divisions, slapped every one of them, almost 600 small businesses in America, with a federal tax of between 20 and $40,000. You know why? Because they had determined that because they were making hand sanitizer, they needed to be regulated as over-the-counter uh, drug monograph manufacturing facilities. Yeah. No Congress voted on this tax. It almost bankrupted hundreds of small businesses. Wow. And but for one communication staffer at our department texting me a story from I think it was Reason magazine saying, "Hey, um, we're taxing hundreds of small businesses for making hand sanitizer." I said, "That can't be possible." Around yeah. midnight, I can be in a meeting with our lawyers on December like 30th or something found out, yep. FDA had done this. And who did it at FDA? Not the Commissioner. It wasn't the Secretary of HHS. I was the chief of staff. I didn't even know about it. A mid level acting official Mm. signed a regulation that enacted what was effectively a federal tax of 10s of 1000s of dollars on literally hundreds and hundreds of American small business heroes who had done nothing more than make hand sanitizer in the middle of a pandemic.
1: Yeah, and like this wow. story
0: has a good ending. It was my last official act as chief of staff, and December thirty yeah. first of twenty twenty to un- overrule that. That story has a good ending, but Vance, mm. there are hundreds or thousands of stories like that that yeah. don't have a good ending, and it had thousands right. of businesses that are just being crushed. They can't grow, or they go out of business because of uh, overzealous regulators like that.
1: Yeah, it's just mind blowing of the situations that come up, and we hear about this. You know, across all the agencies. And it's even worse now, of course, than the Biden administration, because at least some of those at the top in the in the Trump administration, most of them at the Trump administration were, were very bright, who are on the side of deregulation and everything else. Some weren't, but, but most were. And and I, and I can only imagine what it's like there right now. Well, we're seeing the effects of what's happening in the economy from the Biden you know, regulation, high taxes, high spending, and everything else that's been going on—it's just—it's it, crushing American families across the country. And you know, I've had different people on talking about this. And uh, you know, I don't want to belabor too much about the federal stuff because we really want to talk about Texas as well, where we think about more freedom and liberty coming on in the future uh, and in currently, hopefully. But I wonder, given your time there during those days, kind of those dark days of COVID, when we saw all that stuff coming in. I mean, I remember my times during the Situation Room. Mine was more with the economist teams and everything. You know, it was a very troubling time of the uncertainty and everything else that was going on. I I was writing memos to folks saying, hey, look, we cannot shut down. Uh, I I don't think this is a, a role for government to be doing things. However, I also knew that there was much uncertainty that the president didn't want on his watch, all these people dying and everything else going on. There were a lot of other factors at play. And and I know, like, you know, you and I, we talk a lot and and we see what happens on Twitter or X.com and everything. I, I wonder, like, what is your kind of thought process of what was going on from that time and how to overcome some of the pushback of like, well, we were in the Trump administration. So we just shut everything down, which. know there's 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 a lot of nuance that's missed on that so i wonder what your thoughts Uh, are though brian
0: no you could you could do whole shows on this people have already literally written many books uh about Mm -hmm. what happened and 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 in those days i mean look i i was there from the beginning i I think i was the very first official in dc uh, that was notified by the cdc because again they're one of our 26 divisions Uh, that they notified, I believe it was December 31st, 2019, and they notified um, me that they had detected, I think it was 27 cases of pneumonia-like illness in Wuhan, China. Hmm. And you got to remember stepping back into those days that when, you, you know, you're you're overseeing um, something as large as the CDC that's you know managing what's going on all, all across the globe. You get notified of all kinds of things all the time, and there's a constant decision that you had to make as the chief of staff at HHS, which is, okay, what, what goes to the secretary? What goes to the White House? You, know? and you make thousands of decisions like that a day. And looking back, it, it's hard to imagine how literally world-changing that notification would have become, and then to have lived through every iteration of the Trump administration's response. And th- th- I want to put one myth uh, to bed out there, because there yeah. is this big push that, you know, we were shutdowns and and that sort of thing? Absolutely not. The Trump administration at our core was quintessentially deregulatory. But to your point, we have just at HHS alone, you know, 85,000 employees, 100,000 contractors, the the public health apparatus is all there. And they have very different perspectives and very different policy goals than we did. But we were the um, American, not just the America First administration, we were the Medical Freedom Administration. This Hmm. is the same administration that that did right to try. I was with the President in the White House when we signed that because we wanted doctors and patients to be in charge of their medical decisions. And we never lost that. And I'm very proud to say that when we left office, and I worked until the last minute at noon on January twentieth, two 2021. Sorry, 2021. um, There was not one single federal uh, COVID vaccine mandate. There was not one single federal COVID lockdown order, none, period. All of it you saw, without exception, were state, local, county, city lockdown orders. They were local uh, vaccine mandates. We didn't have a single one because we had people like me who said, even in the most trying of times, we can't compromise on the constitution there is no you know pandemic exemption mm-hmm. uh, to the bill of rights right and so i'm just really proud to have served in a america first medical freedom uh, administration and because look you hear voices on all sides and i wish i could communicate to people what it's like to be in that room i mean Vance, i spent more time in this in the white house situation room in the west wing uh, in 2020 yeah. than i will ever be able to remember getting real time information as much as we could from china who was not being transparent they were not being cooperative i remember vividly, us trying to get the American CDC, the WHO teams on the ground. That was a massive fight. They delayed, delayed. And then even when they let them in, they wouldn't let us see the material, the information or or the locations that we needed to to go from then until standing up Operation Warp Speed and, and people Uh, can think what they want of that. I am firmly a believer that doctors and patients should have every tool available to make a decision uh, on any kind of medical countermeasure, vaccines, uh, medicines, diagnostics, but that it should never be forced, always voluntary. And that was our position. I'm incredibly proud of our response, but you have to remember in all those days, we had every media outlet in the country blaming us personally for, for every death, every sickness, everything that didn't happen. And so I think we actually did a very good job yeah. balancing the, the, the lack of information at the beginning, the, the fear. I mean, we were th- in the early days, we were thinking the case fatality rate might have been 3%, 4%. Right. Thank God we learned relatively quickly.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, within a few months, it wasn't there. And people forget we started actively trying to reopen the American economy just a couple months later. I mean, by spring and then certainly into summer, opening schools. And every time we talked about opening schools or reopening parts of the economy, Uh, the media just absolutely savaged us for that. But no, I'm a believer in medical freedom. I'm continuing that fight today in the state of Texas, and we never wavered on that, not once during the Trump administration.
1: Yep, that's right, Brian. And and, and there were a lot of different voices, too. I mean, this is one of the things I thought was good about President Trump is he was interested in hearing different voices. Now, Mm -hmm. there may have been some things that, I may not have agreed with, for example, I'm not for tariffs. You know, I, I think that we need more immigration reform, not just a wall. But that that'd be a whole other show that we could do. But he was, but there was also guys in there like you know, Fauci or, or Burks who were making key points with in this. That you know, I talk about a lot about trade-offs because economics is all about trade-offs, and that was one of yeah. the things that I know you think a lot about, Brian. That I'm not sure everyone did though around the table about what the trade-offs were going to be if we did start putting the shutdowns and and we've, we've, we've we kind of created some of these precedents that were set. and I, I think at the end of the day, you know maybe maybe there could have been some stuff that changed but ultimately uh, that we were heading in the right direction. I like your view your your thoughts on the the medical freedom, which I was totally a part of that the operation warp speed that got the vaccine in line and everything else but but now kind of transitioning though as as we're, as we're getting going is in Texas, Texas was closed down for a long time. So whenever I left, DC in May of 2020, I came back and worked at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and started working a lot with Greg Abbott's team about opening back up because there was a lot of hesitation about opening up. Which you know you had DeSantis and others, uh, Chr- Christy Nome, who who weren't shutting down very much at all. But I think you're right that it was really the state and local governments that were putting these mandates and other things in place and not opening up nearly as fast. I mean, Texas really didn't open until a year later, March 2021. Uh, where we were fully open because it was this phased-in approach and everything else, which caused a lot of problems over that time. And so I know you've been a big, a big advocate of these COVID, banning COVID mandates and everything. Why don't you t- t- tell us a little bit about that? And then I want to get into school choice and property taxes before we uh, finish up here.
0: Man, I think every topic you just mentioned could be its own full hour. Oh, but but I no, medical. look I- I believe in, in, in protecting individual liberty. I believe in protecting medical freedom. And I believed in every minute that I served in the Trump administration. And from the, the day that I got elected to the Texas House, I immediately started working on protecting the medical freedom of every Texan. Because when I left, it wasn't because you know we just left office and a new crew was gonna come in with the same approach. No, we had the Biden administration come in and we quickly learned these guys might pursue mandates on the vaccine. So I immediately set out to work to protect the medical freedom of all 30 million Texans. And and, and you're right, Texas was under a disaster declaration for COVID far too long. I helped, you know, prepare the original um, federal, federal public health emergency for COVID uh, in January of 2020. I never would have imagined that Texas would have been one of, if not the last states in America to still exist under a state of emergency for COVID-19, that there was no justification for keeping uh, Texas under that type of re- a regime for that long. But there was also no justification for Texas not protecting individual liberty of 30 million people and banning the tyrannical mandates. Uh, so the day I was sworn in, I, I, can't, I won in a special election, yeah. so was, I was sworn in by myself in October with only eight days to go in the third special session of 2021, but by lunchtime, I filed the Texas COVID Vaccine Freedom Act, and I've been working to pass it uh, every day for the last two years. We should have passed it in 2021. There's no reason we didn't. Uh, It passed the Texas Senate uh, five months ago. It passed the Texas uh, House public health committee 10 to one on a bipartisan basis, two times five months ago. Uh, Unfortunately, the leadership of the Texas House of Representatives has has protected COVID vaccine mandates in the state of Texas for over two years now. And it's time for that to stop. Governor Abbott is right to bring us back for a special session. And I'm very grateful uh, that because of the efforts uh, that I have led along with hundreds and thousands or millions of medical freedom advocates across the state, the government responded, put it on the agenda for this special session. And I'm cautiously optimistic that we're finally going to ban uh, COVID vaccine mandates in Texas. And I, I want to put one other myth to bed because you mentioned that people get, I don't know why at, in 2023, I have to keep saying this. Yeah, You can support the availability of vaccines, yeah. of medicines, of tests, and also oppose tyrannical and indefensible mandates. Yeah. Those two things, Every I want every Texan to make a choice along with their doctor for any medical decision they have to make, particularly for something that's an invasive as an irreversible vaccination. That is not the role for bureaucrats. It's not the role for employers. And, and one other myth that's really out there is, well, Brian, you say you believe in small government. If private businesses want to, to mandate the vaccines, why don't you let them? Isn't that a small government position? And I would, and I'm very sympathetic to that argument, because I'm one of these people that when they come and say, hey, you know, Brian, should the government do, and I'm like, let me stop you there, the government probably (laughs) shouldn't do that thing. But in the case of vaccine mandates, the only reason we ever had them in the private sector is because of bad government action, primarily through the PrEP Act and others that created a liability shield for employers, letting them shift all the risk to the employees. They're not, the free market didn't give us. Private sector COVID vaccine mandates; those are results of government action, and it's very right and proper for states to protect the individual medical freedom of their constituents. And I'm not going to stop uh, about uh, this fight until every Texan has medical freedom from COVID tyranny.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense, Brian. And you and I have talked, had those conversations about what do we do with private businesses yeah. and everything else. But I get your point. You know, you don't want to double down on on bad policy or bad choices, um, and that mm-hmm. seems kind of like what that's the case there. And you know, we already have uh, flu shots that some people will get every year, but they're not mandated. They're available to you just like a COVID shot. If you want to get a COVID shot, Go for it. If you want to get the boosters, I, I say go for it. But but I agree with you. I don't think that there should be a mandate or anything like that. Um, and and there are costs to it uh, along the way. Nothing is free, as I say often Try on this show, as Milton Friedman said. Um, and and I think whenever we're looking at all these things, we know what the costs are now. We've seen what the effects have been in those states that opened up faster, like the Floridas, uh, versus those that didn't, like the Californias, and where people are moving to. And a big part of this is now also getting into some fiscal policy, um, where I. we're seeing more of this where you have high tax high spend states um with americans for tax reform i just released the sustainable budget project which everyone should go check out, but it starts to look at the budgets and making sure that we're spending no more than population growth plus inflation, if any at all. I mean, that's a way to stop the spending per capita in inflation-adjusted terms. Just stop the spending. Come on, guys. And even cut spending. We're already spending too much. That's a maximum. It's not a target or anything like that. It really should be less than that. And unfortunately, you know, Texas did a good job for a while. I will give them that. But this session that just passed um they they increased the budget the most ever by 35 percent. if you look at state funds from one budget to the next 35 percent, massive increase at the same time that they were going to try to create the largest property tax cut in texas history which i've been writing about this brian and it is it, it, it's, it's the second largest uh even in dollar terms and inflation adjusted terms <laughs> or anything yeah. else and what, I, what I'm kind of concerned about, I'd love to give some of your thoughts about there because I know we've also talked about eliminating property tax and the need for that. Um, but the thing that I'm also concerned about as a fiscal conservative, classical liberal, uh, libertarian in a lot of ways, I think this is going to come back to hurt a lot of the more, con- what they call themselves, conservatives or Republicans that are in Texas because they've advocated for large tax cuts and everything else. And when people get their bills over the next couple of years, there's not going to be this $1,400 cut on their, on their bill because you also have, cities, county and special purpose districts that are going to jack up their taxes, just like school districts will. And so they're not going to see that in there. And then we're going to have it's going to be hard to sustain this because of all the spending increases that were in the budget. At the same time, now they're talking about you know increasing funding for public education, which also got the largest spending increase ever. <laughs> And they're only talking about a little bit for school choice. So I'm packaging all this in there together of what we're there's talking a lot, There's about. a lot there. <laughs> I know, I know within this third special session, yeah. but, I, but I, I'm really concerned about the future of Texas from all of this because yeah. Texas is not leading. None other states already have school choice. Other states yeah. are, are are doing things with their property taxes and lowering their income taxes, trying to get to no personal income tax. How can we lead, Brian, with all these other things going on if we if we're not sticking to these principles?
0: Well, you're right to be concerned, you're right to raise the issue, and it's, and it's a source of perpetual frustration from me uh, ever since I got elected to the Texas legislature. You know, look, I, I'm old enough to remember when Republicans not only talked about, but tried to cut government. And, and, and to this day, my guess is every Republican, especially Republicans campaigning in Texas, they campaign promising to make government smaller. They campaign on low taxes and low regulations and more freedom, right? They all say yep. those words. The problem is what you just mentioned is the deeds are not matching that. And I say this all the time. Texas has a well-earned reputation for leading the nation in the defense of individual liberty and freedom and and small government and federalism. The problem is that the reality now is that in far too many ways, we are coasting on that reputation Mm. and we're not actually leading The Texas should have been leading the nation in the defense of medical freedom. We should have banned mandates years ago. Texas should have been leading the nation in education freedom. Far from blazing a trail on school choice, if we can finally pass it this session, we'll be like the 33rd state in America to empower their parents uh, with some form of school choice. So why are we not leading on every single issue? And the the concern is not just, hey, you're beating up on Texas. I I actually Mm -hmm. believe the old adage, as goes Texas, so goes the nation. But where, where is everybody? Ref- all of I call them the the, the the sort of the refugees, you know, from New York and, mm. and California. Mm-hmm. Where are they going? They're yeah. fleeing their, their blue Democrat um, uh, backgrounds, where where the socialism is, is just almost the new norm. They're fleeing to Texas. Well, what happens if Texas flips and turns blue? Mm. Where do we go then as a country and then what is the other big state that could stand up and push back against the unconstitutional tyranny uh, that's coming from uh, the federal government, uh, especially under Joe Biden. So so the stakes really couldn't be higher. I mean, it it sounds cliche when you say things like the futures on the line or the next generation depends on this, but they very literally do. And every time government takes an action or spends money, you understand this as an economist. First of all, it can only take it from you three ways. It can direct, directly tax you. It can uh, exercise debt, which means you're going to pay for it later, or three uh, through inflation. Mm-hmm. Thank God the state of Texas doesn't have the third tool. <laughs> um, but but in, the, in, in the state of Texas, we had two. And in Texas, just five months ago, We passed the most bloated, liberal, reckless, irresponsible budget in the history of our state. We grew government from one cycle to another, as you said, between 25 and 35% in one cycle. Vance, you've worked in DC. I've worked in DC for many years. DC Democrats don't even propose growing the federal government 25% Mm -hmm. from one cycle to another. So, So in the state of Texas, in God's country, in the bright red conservative bastion of Texas, we are growing government at a rate that would make DC Democrats blush. Yeah, I, I voted against that budget, but I think I was only joined with, with two or three other members yeah. voting against the budget. And you can't sustain that because what you do, if, if the trend continues, we're talking about doubling the size of government right. uh, every three to four years. Yep. You can't do that. There's no chance the next generation could be free because every penny they earn would go to the government and of course you know what happens when people become disincentivized to
1: work because of confiscatory levels of taxation Well, we're headed there yeah yep now we really are brian and you know Texas does, gets a lot of things right, as you mentioned, and I'm blessed to live in Texas. I'm a native Texan, grew up in Houston and went to school in Lubbock and moved back to Houston area, Conroe, and then now live in Round Rock, Texas and everything just near Austin. I, I, a lot of people talk a good game here, and it's interesting to see the divide, though, that you have, where you have kind of your rural Republicans versus urban Republicans and 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 so forth. You have some more conservative Democrats as well, not a whole lot, but there are a few that are out there too that i think can make texas lead the way but i but whatever i'm thinking about you know letting people prosper and having less poverty and more pr- prosperity and a robust economy and everything else we're, we're living more off of civil society churches synagogues families and friends and things of that nature not on government where government is not the first line of defense but the last line of defense people families should be the first line of defense The way that we do that is through limited government and free market capitalism is the best path to let people prosper we've got to get back to that you know that means cutting the budget where we need to we can't grow at this pace it's unsustainable and we need to find ways to cut you know taxes in one particular area would be limiting spending in the state level and cutting school property taxes until they're eliminated as quickly as possible maybe that could be in about a decade but just think we'd be we'd be the state without a personal income tax and without half of property tax and then get the local governments to limit their spending and buy down their own property taxes until we get to zero. Because ultimately, as you know, know, I've talked about this too, is that we need our God-given right to own property and not have a wealth tax, which is one of the ballot propositions this year that's in November to ban a wealth tax. Well, for banning wealth tax, we've got to be banning a property tax too.
0: (laughs) Because if a property tax isn't a wealth tax by definition, I don't know what it is.
1: Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly uh... right. And it's mind numbing. And, And, you know, the the last thing there too, um, Brian, is 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 school choice. I just think is so important yeah. for the future of our country. And mm-hmm. and if people are moving here for opportunity and everything else, where are they also gonna go to your point if they don't have school choice? They're going to want to go to one of these other nine states that have yeah. universal school choice right now why would you want to stay in texas when you can go somewhere else and use your taxpayer dollars as you see fit for your kids they're not the government's kids the government has no money if, if we give more money to them the bureaucrats and the politicians are going to run our kids instead of parents yeah. we well, got to get back to this well and in what
0: other part of human life yeah. in what other part of our economy do people sit around and go you know what I want a one-size-fits-all government-run monopolistic solution, yeah. okay, to whatever the problem is. It, it, it they don't work anywhere, and and so why would we say I want a one-size-fits-all government-run monopolistic solution in education <laughs> either? It right. makes no sense. And here's the staggering: I was on the I was on the House, actually, I still am on the House Public Health uh, Public Education Committee, mm-hmm. and when I started tearing through the data, I was I was horrified. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are shocked to learn that across the state of Texas. The percentage of eighth graders that are proficient in reading and in mathematics is 24%. Mm. Well, 24%, that means the government monopoly is failing to adequately educate over 75% of Texas eighth graders. Well, I firmly believe one of the reasons for that is because we lack competition in education. Um, what happens in, 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 when, when competitive pressures work in other parts of our economy, you see two things, quality improves over time, mm-hmm. and costs decrease over the time. Where do you not see it? Well, you see it in the parts of our economy where the government has most distorted those markets and that's education and healthcare, yeah. where we have declining uh, quality metrics, even as in education per pupil expenditures have not just increased, but have skyrocketed. Yeah. And so everybody who wants to just talk about throwing more money at the problem, well, we had higher rates of educational attainment when per-people spending was lower. Right. Um, so just funding it more can't be the solution. We need to do big, bold, radical things that do two things, improve the education for the kids. And then number two, which I actually think is the most important, put parents in charge of their kids' education. No two kids are alike. Nobody knows the needs and individual learning uh, proclivities of a child like a, a parent. And for the life of me, I do not understand why we relegate education decisions only by zip codes in the state of Texas. I can think of nothing more fair, nothing more equitable. Yeah. And also, well, if, if you and I could talk about the economics of it all day long. I actually yeah. think there's a moral dimension yeah. if the government's going to be involved. How moral or ethical is it to say to a single mom working two or three jobs, lives in Austin, Texas, all she wants is her kid to have a good life. And she knows the most important thing for him to have that is to get a quality education, but he's an Austin ISD, which has absolutely abysmal um, reading and writing statistics. And instead of educating her kids, so they're not teaching their kid to read or write. Right. They're also indoctrinating the kid, their kid in all kinds of left-wing socialistic Marxist ideologies. Uh, they say they don't have enough money to, to hire math tutors, but they've got enough money to bus kids to pride parades mm. on the weekends. What What is moral about saying to that poor family stuck in a failing school that, you know what, life sucks and you just have to stay there and too bad that your kid isn't going to know how to read and we're going to hand them a diploma when they're 18 years old that they can't read and which means by the way they can't get a job they can't provide for themselves right. they can't provide for their families which means they're going to be more dependent on government uh, welfare programs into adulthood yeah. for both them and their kids. It, it's, a, it's a cycle yeah. that just sort of amplifies exponentially downward. We've got to break the cycle of dependence. We've got to put parents in charge of their kids' education. We've got to make sure every student in Texas is educated. Mm-hmm. And I think um, allowing competition and passing robust universal school choice is one of the best ways
1: to do it. I totally agree with you. Amen. People ask me, what's the best way to reduce poverty? I say universal school choice. That That's the yeah. number one thing. Taxes and everything else, they, they matter but i really believe that that's going to bring about the bright young minds of tomorrow to give them the opportunities that they need mm-hmm. to succeed all the other stuff yeah are are important but i think that's just so important so you know and, and real, fat, real fast real fast
0: because i heard you say rule a second ago the biggest yep myth out there on this issue is that rural Texas doesn't want this, right? That's a lie. It's a myth. There is not a shred or a scintilla of data to support that. I yeah. represent a mostly rural districts. Yeah. I campaigned on this issue. I was outspent three to one. The whole campaign was about school choice and I won by 11 points. When this was put on the Republican part, a primary party ballot two years ago, the 10 most rural counties in Texas support school choice by over 82%. And in fact, Nine of the 10 most rural states in the country have mm. some form of parental empowerment and school choice. Urban families want school choice. Rural families want and deserve school choice. And it's about time the government of the state of Texas gives it to them.
1: Yes, I, I totally agree. And it's interesting, too. Like, their argument is, is that, well, where else are they going to go? That, that <laughs> you know, they don't. It, so it's like, OK, well, if we have school choice and it doesn't matter, they'll just keep going to those government schools and because yeah. if they don't have anywhere else to go. But what we know is, Whenever you put incentives in place like school choice and education savings accounts would do, it would incentivize other schooling opportunities to pop up. That's how but also right it's, it's one of my favorite
0: lies. i said this at a panel the other day it's one of my favorite lies that is just told so much that people believe you know rural texas doesn't want school choice Rural texas at rural texas it'll destroy the public schools out there. i can't help but laughing out there because right. in the same breath with, without skipping a beat they say um, r- school choice will ruin the public schools in rural texas and then they say because there's, no. uh, oh, they'll say at the same time, and there's no private schools out here in rural Texas. Right, right. And like, well, you, ha- you realize both can't be true. So like, right. would you pick one? Yes. But to your point, they, they fail to take into account behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. And the fact that perhaps over time, if you increase the demand by increasing the number of families who have resources now right. to make a choice to where their kid goes to school, well, well maybe you would have some homeschool pods. Show up. Yep. Sure. Maybe the local ch- church would start um, school educating a few students. Like, public education is probably still going to uh, educate the vast majority, sure. the overwhelming majority of Texans. We have to make improvements there. We, I want us to have the best public school system uh, in America. My dad is a local public school trustee. My children yep. go to public schools. I'm personally yep. vested in the success of the public school uh, system. But all dimensions are all at, uh, all types of Texans, well, Republicans, Democrats, independents, rural, urban, we got to get it done.
1: Yep. Yep. Man, it's been a great conversation, Brian. Uh, I know we I wish we could talk all day, have you back on so we could talk about some more things. Um, as we're wrapping yeah. up, though, what would you like to leave us with today?
0: Well, just that we need more people that uh, in government that not just go home and tell their voters what they want to hear. They can talk a good game about small government and liberty um, and federalism and freedom and constitutionally limited government but that when they get into positions of power, whether it's in the executive branch or an elected office in legislative bodies to stand up, do the right thing for the right reasons, not to cave to the liberal specialists, because Vance, one of the biggest problems is when people get in government, every pressure, every temptation is to cave, is to go to left, because there is a limitless number of well-funded special interests willing to make your life comfortable, willing to get you glowing coverage in the media. There are no special interests if you're there only fighting for freedom and uh, liberty and for the principles of constitutionally limited government. We need to hold and, and people like you and the people who listen to your podcast I can't thank you enough, because if we're going to save this state and if we're going to save this country. It's not going to come from the top down, the liberal special interest in D.C. or Austin. It's going to come from a bottom up grassroots activists, men and women, patriots who care more about the next generation yeah. than they do about a comfortable life for themselves or for their family. I'm proud to, to join and partner with every one of them to create a more free and prosperous Texas. And if I had to sum up an every, everything I'm doing in one sentence, I want government to be as irrelevant to our lives as possible so we can be as free as God meant for us to be. And it's always great talking to you, my friend. Yeah.
1: Amen. I'm right there with you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you too, Brian. And we'll we'll do more of it soon as we continue to fight for liberty and prosperity and freedom and families. You know, that's what it's all about. And faith too. We got to make sure we have faith in there. And so God bless you, Brian, and your family. Keep up the great work. And uh, I look forward to talking to you soon.
0: God bless you, buddy. Look forward to it as well.
1: Well, great. And uh, for the audience, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please go rate and review us, uh, the Let People Prosper Show. And until next time, let people prosper.